0: Hello and welcome to Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. We are speaking to you from the International Anti-Corruption Conference in Washington DC. We were delighted to have Shannon Green, the Executive Director of the USAID Anti-Corruption Task Force, join us for the podcast. In this discussion, she speaks to Liz David barrett about USAID's new anti-corruption strategy, as well as the agency's decleptification guide, a resource which explores the options available to development agencies and supporting work to counter kleptocracies. Liz and Shannon discuss changing mindsets from approaching anti corruption as a technical challenge to focus on the political dimensions to the problem and how political analysis can help identify the most promising options for anti corruption reformers during windows of opportunity. We hope you enjoy the episode and thank you for listening.
1: Really pleased to meet you, Shannon, and looking forward to our chat. We usually start off by asking people, can you tell us a bit how you came to be working on anti-corruption? Thank you. It's great to be with you today. I've
2: actually spent most of my career working on democracy and human rights issues, a significant portion of that working on expanding, preserving space for civil society. And increasingly, I found, as we were facing such a significant and sustained backsliding situation for a democracy, a lot of it was because citizens are just losing confidence and the ability of democracies to deliver. And I found that corruption, like really significant levels of corruption, was in large part driving that disenchantment with democracy. As people saw, you know, the rich getting richer, the people with access and power, being able to take advantage of that access and power and sort of orient decisions around what was best for them and not what was best for the country. And so I thought that it would be a really interesting challenge and an important challenge to work on, you know, as part of this process of trying to sort of reinvigorate democracy and have found that it is, in fact, all of that so important for Democratic renewal but also as somebody who works for a development agency, like really now understanding how vital it is to combat corruption in order to protect
1: and advance development gains. Great. And so your role now, Could you tell us about that?
2: Yep. So I'm the first executive director of USAID's Anti-Corruption Task Force and a senior advisor to Administrator Power. The task force was created about a year and a half ago because US aid and the US administration have decided to really prioritize anti-corruption in a way that we never saw before. And so when administrator power was coming into this role, she looked around at USAID and realized that we had a very small footprint and in order to really surge and make the most of this moment to address, you know, corruption and or to address corruption and the elevation of anti-corruption Um, she saw the need to create this anti-corruption task force that could pull together staff from throughout the agency and in some cases, experts from outside of USAID.
1: Great. And I like the way you characterize that that sort of grand corruption and the processes of backsliding that you've seen. And you talked about people in very high-level positions who are taking advantage of their access to power and then using that to orient decisions, skew the playing field, as it were. And one of the really interesting things that USAID has put out recently is this decleptification guide. I, I found that really interesting because I think once you've had that process of moving in moving towards kleptocracy or democratic backsliding, it's pretty difficult to get out of it, isn't it? So yes. what's the idea of the decleptification guide? We'll say that five times.
2: <laughs> so the idea of the decleptification guide was understanding that there are these windows and oftentimes they're very brief windows where your ability to make really deep and enduring reform when it comes to corruption open up. And we would find ourselves somewhat flat footed in our ability to respond comprehensively, agilely, quickly to those windows. And so we realized in those moments to have the greatest chance of uprooting kleptocracy, we needed to have sort of a playbook. You know, what does USAID do? And by extension the rest of the donor community do when there is that elasticity to support the frontline reformers who frankly have put it all on the line to open up that windows succeed so the whole idea was to sort of craft this playbook what do we need to do before the window opens we found that we need to have a much better sense of the networks and the corruption dynamics in country we need to have deep relationships with civil society In the window, that's when the opportunities spike. We need to make hugely um, significant and ambitious reform when it comes to disclosure of assets and when it comes to standing up independent anti-corruption bodies, when it comes to economic restructuring to sort of uproot oligarchs from the economic system. And when that window starts to close, there are things that we can do too including supporting you know, investigative journalists and civil society and those islands of integrity or where there is still independence and a commitment to integrity. So that was the whole idea, is just make sure we were prepared, really, for when those opportunities emerge.
1: Yeah, which is a great idea, I think, this kind of idea of yeah, rapid response, in a way, when you get that window of opportunity. But it's interesting, because it's quite a political sort of response. So this is not just technical anti-corruption now, but this is really thinking about which players do we support can you tell us a bit about you know how do you choose who to support how do you verify that they're the right people to support what kinds of problems do you run into with something that is more overtly political
2: yeah so first of all i mean USAID is embarking on a pretty significant adaptation reorientation modernization whatever um word you want to use when it comes to anti-corruption and so you know, we recognize that corruption is a political challenge, right? And historically, where we've tried to address it as a purely technical matter, we haven't seen the kind of success that we would Mm -hmm. like to see. So like, Mm -hmm. first and foremost, it's just sort of admitting that we need to be politically savvy, we need to understand the political and economic dynamics in the country, we need to understand incentives and motivations. So I would just say, you know, in the policy that USAID issued just a couple of days ago USAID's first anti-corruption policy we acknowledge that corruption isn't just about a few bad ap- apples you know mm-hmm. trying to enrich themselves like fundamentally it's about accumulating power and using power to gain advantage and that can be done by actors within a country it can be done by actors outside of a country trying to gain some political advantage right and other countries. So, first, I would just say it is political. Secondly, we're not choosing winners and losers. We are trying to support indigenous, authentic reformers and champions who have a genuine commitment to anti-corruption, have a genuine commitment to transparency and accountability and integrity. Again, that requires that you have, you know, some analysis, which I keep going back to understanding what is a superficial level of commitment um and understanding what is a genuine commitment but what we made very clear we try to make clear in the declyptification guide is like this is not us opening up the window mm-hmm. this is us coming behind and supporting the actors on the ground who open that window when as i mentioned before are like sometimes putting it all online including their own lives to engage in this reform process
1: Great. So you've got your window of opportunity, you've got actors to work with, and then you talked about having a playbook. What's in the playbook? So the playbook are some of the things that I mentioned.
2: Understanding in the pre-window, you have to do your really savvy political economy analysis. We need to be supporting those independent civil society activists who are calling for change. Um, We think that support to investigative journalists is super important. So we recently announced Reporter Shield, which is an insurance vehicle that we're using to support investigative journalists and other civic actors who in addition to facing protection threats, all kinds of you know, malign and you know misinformation and all kinds of other things that they have to face online, they're also facing lawsuits. So in that pre-window, like really making sure that we're just like supporting those independent actors and trying to keep as much space open as possible the playbook and the window is much more robust. So it's everything from standing up independent, specialized, anti-corruption commissions, supporting investigation and prosecution, supporting asset disclosure and vetting, continue to be around civil society and investigative journalists because you don't ever want to abandon those supports, It could be support to a Supreme Audit Commission. I mean, it's like literally anything that you can imagine at any level um, that is really about introducing greater integrity and transparency and accountability in the system. And the post window, it sort of reverts back to making sure that you have, you know, that ongoing political analysis, that you're safeguarding funds that might be flowing into other sectors, And again, that you're supporting the investigative journalists and civil society and connecting them to other reformers from other countries so that they're not alone and not isolated. And I think that's something that's really important given the transnational nature of corruption. We often say that USAID's approach to anti-corruption is locally rooted but globally connected. This is really hard work, right? Like, the people who do this work are under a lot of strain. They're under a lot of pressure and it can be very lonely. And so throughout all three windows, just like making sure that they know that they have a partner and a friend in the United States, um, but that they're also connected to one another and sort of have that community and have that sense of solidarity.
1: Yeah. I always think that's a really important thing, actually just joining up the people who are doing similar things in different countries, but actually would need the support. And sometimes it is just, being able to get that kind of mentoring and, and right. yeah yeah very interesting I guess you know then the next step in this you know, is you know thinking about how long does a window of opportunity last or do you have kind of red flags for when it might be closing or strategies for for dealing yeah with a potential reversal of that kind of dynamic Yeah, so
2: we find that there is the greatest opportunity for really deep reform within the first sort of 18 to 24 months, right? Which doesn't mean that it, you know, won't endure beyond that. But in terms of really significant reforms where you're sort of upending entire sort of systems, changing social norms, like all of that stuff, um, you tend to get the most action within that initial window, that said, like you know, you can continue making progress after that. However, some of the markers that we start to see in terms of the retrenchment of you know the forces of hypocrisy or corruption are a couple of different things. Number one, it often happens that those independent bodies that were established, whether it be an anti-corruption court or anti-corruption commission, you start to see the heads of those things. You know, whereas the person who was initially appointed, very honest, very independent, very outspoken, you know, you might see them replaced with somebody who is less so. And so mm-hmm. that's that's like ooh, an initial marker. The other thing that you might start to see is rhetoric discrediting or maligning anti-corruption actors or institutions. Another red flag. Mm-hmm. Um Oftentimes it might come in the guise of, oh, well, they're being partisan or this is politicized. And don't get me wrong, sometimes anti-corruption can be politicized, right? And it can be weaponized. And that's another thing that we have to look out for, particularly Mm -hmm. when it comes to investigations and prosecutions. Like we want to see them going after and investigating corrupt actors' regardless of political affiliation Mm -hmm. and so if you start to see it's all the people from the past or from an opposition party and no one who is currently in government or in power or part of you know the party in power is being investigated even though there is reason to believe that they're engaged in corruption well that's another um marker that maybe the level of commitment that you thought was there isn't there and then of course the final thing is like Going after a civil society, an investigative journalist mm-hmm. with physical threats, you know, oftentimes you see that. Sometimes you see investigations launched against them, lawsuits. Other times, you know, they do face this sort of relentless campaign to try to discredit them. That is another sign that perhaps we're entering into that window of decline, at which point diplomatic engagement is... Uh-huh. As important, perhaps more important um, than even our programmatic engagement, right? So there are things that we can still do when things start to backslide to support those islands of integrity, the institutions that are still trying to do the right thing. It might be the Supreme Audit institution, it might be, you know, there might be a great prosecutor general, whatever it might be, but that is where. Our diplomatic support, our diplomatic pressure is absolutely essential, and where USAID really seeks to be lashed up um, with the departments of state and other parts of the U.S.
1: government. That's interesting. So basically, if you see these signs, it doesn't mean that USAID is going to pull out or stop supporting, but you're going to activate different channels, correct? to fine. Yep.
2: Yeah. We all we have to constantly recalibrate, right? And and that's just how dynamic these processes are. You don't want to pull out too soon. Mm-hmm. Um, Because it might just, these things ebb and flow, right? But you also don't want to, for example, you know, continue the process of of digitizing something or building some elaborate e-procurement system if you found that the corruption has just shifted upstream or has found a way of circumventing that system, right? And Mm -hmm. so that's where... Analysis. I'm gonna go back to yeah. analysis, which hopefully your audience um, can yeah. appreciate. Academics, we like to hear this no, more, more analysis. It's <laughs> so important. Like you need to understand when something is just like superficial and you know, and it's really not worth the investment, versus where things just take time. Like this is not a short-term process, right? And yeah. so USA tends to have the longer view. But at the same time, like, we're responsible for taxpayer funds, and so we also have to just really keep our ear to the ground, do that analysis, listen to our local partners, and understand when that investment is not, you know, having the intended effect and is not paying dividends. I
1: wonder if I could ask you to reflect on something that always sort of has puzzled me over the years. And I used to work a lot in Central and Eastern Europe, where you were, of course, dealing with transition from communism. And and so one of the big issues issues which comes up too with this kind of decleptification, I think, is when you've got a change of regime, how much do you need to change the whole personnel and how much do you need to keep some of that institutional memory? So there's this real tension there between do you need a completely fresh start or yeah, then do you throw out the baby with the bathwater? Any reflections on that?
2: You are spot on about this. It is a real dilemma. It's a challenge. And it's not just in former Soviet states. So I was recently in Zambia. And, you know, there was an election last summer, which brought to power President Hechelema, who has committed to a really significant um, anti-corruption reform agenda and is facing a bureaucracy that has been instrumentalized you know, for the past decade to engage in a jaw-dropping level of corruption. But I think they're taking the right approach, which is to show that there is accountability for people who are at the very top, who allowed people to engage in these gross and grand levels of corruption with impunity, but also realizing you have to maintain some capacity. Like somebody has to run government. Somebody has to run with these reforms. And so I think they're really trying to strike that careful balance between, you know, showing that there are consequences for engaging in corruption. Um, so they are moving, you know, some of those people out. They're trying to put incentives in place for people who like do have a commitment to honest behavior and have shown a lot of integrity. They're trying to find ways of like, you know, promoting them or acknowledging that they have been acting in ways that are full of integrity and are sort of a model. And then there's just a whole host of other people where, you know, they're really trying to figure out like how to sway them. And I think in that system, what's really interesting is like people do take cues, you know, from the top and So they're, placing a bet that as the government really does show progress and like moves down this road of reform, that the bulk of the, you know, civil service will go with them. But I think draining all of your capacity in a lot of situations that are already low capacity is potentially going to open you up to even more corruption at the same time, right? Like you can't have a head of state and a new government come in that is trying to really change things up fighting, you know, fighting a system that is like pushing back at every turn. And so I think there does need to be a careful balance. And with this and everything else, I think it's like really up to the actors and country to figure out how to strike that right balance. Um, but we're certainly there, like trying to support them with, you know, civil service reform and figuring out the right mix of carrots and sticks. And you mentioned quite a few times
1: leadership and the role of leadership. so. Again, that's interesting, you know, both sort of in the context of the countries that are you know, going through a change, but also in the US, I've, you know, we see a lot more leadership now on anti-corruption. Again, any sort of reflections on how that changes the dynamic or how important that is?
2: I think it's huge. I mean, when it comes to anti-corruption, like we talk about champions all the time, and that's because I do think champions are really important. It's like, you have to have people who are willing to stand up for the right thing even when it's not popular serving as that model and we saw a lot of acknowledgement of President Sandu from Moldova at the conference this week and it's because like when it comes to anti-corruption a single leader can set a tone right can really invest and spark really significant change it's happened in our government President Biden and this administration elevating anti-corruption to a core national security interests, um, really putting it front and center on, ag- on the agenda in a way that you know we never have before. So it really does matter. It's not the only thing that matters um, because I think it starts to open up those windows but what has to come after those windows is the institutionalization. right? So you need those key figures, you need that leadership to spark I think and disperse some of that change But then you also need the systems change, the social norms, you know, change, the institutionalization, the capacity building for all of this to endure. So it's not the only thing that matters, but it's hard to imagine this kind of opening happening in the absence of that kind of committed and dynamic leadership.
1: And then the next step there is kind of if leadership is really important, but also then how do you future-proof reform against the change of leadership um yeah any thoughts
2: on that yeah i mean i do think it's a lot about the systems so just today i was talking to somebody who leads a corruption prevention commission in a country that is undergoing one of these reforms and you know we're talking about okay first you get these huge reforms in place in their case it's about asset disclosure and like betting people who are being put in these really significant anti-corruption positions. But over time, you cannot rely on those individuals. And so you have to change law. You have to build systems. You have to create checks and balances in those systems. You know, you're not ever going to fully sort of eradicate corruption. But in this policy that I mentioned, um, we have sort of a triangle for how we're going to address grand corruption, transnational corruption, and kleptocracy. And it's about three things. Number one, reducing opportunities for corruption. So really making corrupt actors work much more hard to steal, you know, money. So you're not going to eliminate it entirely, but just create transparency, create those systems, et cetera, et cetera, like make them work much harder because then you're going to reduce it. Secondly, raise the cost. Both as an accountability measure and as a deterrent, um, so that gets to the investigations and the prosecutions, but also other, you know, civil sanctions and like a test case out of you know individuals to show others that there is a price today. But then finally, and this is in some cases the hardest, incentivizing integrity in the public and private sectors. So we haven't talked about the private sector but how important um, that is. You know, we've talked a lot about civil service reform, but what we found in a lot of cases is like the massive amounts of corruption have only been able to happen because of collusion between people in the public sector and people in the private sector. And so how do you start to reward private sector entities that are behaving in ways that are transparent and honest and entities that are not engaged in bribery? Like, this is all the process of institutionalization it's a generational challenge it's not going to happen overnight but again like i think you need the short term wins um, and that initial leadership in order to start moving along that path but then you need the long term you know systemic reform in order to sustain it because there is i mean you know from your research i'm sure like if you talk too much about Corruption and endemic corruption, and how devastating it is like that's really important because you want people to understand the human toll of corruption, and you need that mobilization, and you need that coalition building, and you need that pressure. But if people don't see progress, they don't see examples where things are moving in the right direction, it can actually lead to just a complete attachment Mm -hmm. um, from the political process, which is the last thing that you want. So you do need to see these examples from other countries, from your country, where progress is happening. We need to lift up those examples because progress actually begets more progress um, and starts kind of its own virtuous cycle rather than sometimes the vicious cycle we see on the other side.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So before we wrap up, Shannon, um, we always ask people at the end, what do you think anti-corruption researchers should be working on? So, are there areas where you think we really need more evidence or investigation?
2: Uh, oh, so many things. Um, there, like a lot of this, you know, is new. Of course, we've been working in the anti-corruption space for decades, but the evidence base is still then and developing, especially when it comes to these new forms of corruption. So Mm -hmm. I would point you in a couple different directions. First, really understanding how development programs interact with corruption dynamics. So you might have heard Administrator Power the other day talk about how we're really trying to infuse anti-corruption throughout our work in other sectors, whether it be climate or health and that's really really important but we're also trying to understand where we have significant investments in these other sectors in severely corrupt environments how do we protect those investments and how do we ensure that they don't inadvertently exacerbate corruption mm-hmm. so really helping us understand you know how to how to save lives and do the good work that we're trying to do in terms of development Um, and do so in a way that is supportive of anti-corruption would be very helpful. Um, Secondly, this whole idea of strategic corruption, I know everybody doesn't like that word, but the idea of how autocrats and kleptocrats are instrumentalizing corruption to gain advantage in other countries We're starting to get a sense of it, but what would be really helpful, I think, is really understanding like, how does this work? What are the tactics and how do we understand the motivations behind it? And then start to understand, okay, is this fundamentally different from other forms of malign influence? And if so, what are the different tools or strategies that we can use diplomatically and programmatically to combat it? I think those are a couple of the things um, that we're grappling with where having a richer data set or evidence base would be really useful.
1: Thanks. Those are both great ideas, I think. Um, So, yeah, hope to see lots of research coming out on that in the future. Um, Thanks so much, Shannon. Um, It's really great to talk and, and fascinating to hear about this new approach. So, yeah, we look forward to seeing the results filtering through.
2: Thanks. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me.